0: Standing and turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we come before you with gratitude this morning. Um, we love you. It's, it's so good to be in your house. Uh, would you meet us where we are? Um, and would you speak to us this morning? In your name we pray, amen. amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everybody. Miriam was born into what she thought was a Christian family. Uh, her, her dad was the head pastor of their church. Um, she was, was gifted musically. Um, And so she was the choir director there. Um, And so you might say it was like a picture-perfect family uh, and like the picture-perfect small-town American church. Uh, It wasn't until she began dating her now husband, Greg, that uh, holes and, and painful truths were exposed. Early on, Greg, who was already a Christian, attended services at Miriam's dad's church and he, he started noticing that, that what was being taught was, was a bit off, uh, and then frighteningly unbiblical. Uh, and this is, why, this is why the Bible has so much to say about false teachers. Like, you should be careful right now as you're sitting here listening. Um, but more and more, they would discover that her dad's teachings were, were not only unbiblical, but that they were also manipulative and, and self-serving. You know, more and more, she was being confronted with the heavy reality that the man whom she called her father, uh, the man who was also supposed to be a truthful spiritual leader to not only her and her family, uh, but to a whole congregation, was, was actually abusing both roles. You know, instead of being a shepherd and a servant, this man turned, about, turned out to be a megalomaniac, you know, both as a father and a pastor. So after after a pile up of reasons that we can't get into here, she eventually had to make the difficult decision to, to cut ties with that church and with her own father. And unfortunately, they they never fully reconciled before he passed away. Miriam and Greg married and ended up in Seattle, uh, a new city, a new star, and a new church. And at first things were promising. It was great. But it didn't last. During their time at the church, they ended up witnessing psychological oppression and abuse under a fiery and also egotistical and power hungry leader. The church would eventually crumble amid scandal, and there's a whole podcast out about it now. Uh, But Miriam's entire family and church life up to that point was a series of deceit, disillusionment, and wounds. You know, her entire experience of church was all that is contrary to Jesus. And instead of being a safe haven, church for her was only a place of mental and emotional manipulation and suffering. Amanda and I first met Miriam and Greg around the time of our second pregnancy. You know, after, after suffering our first miscarriage, we were hurting and we were desperate for hope. And with the second pregnancy, we were actually really scared to hope. But through all of this, Miriam and Greg were always so eager to, to pray for us. They were people of peace and joy in our lives. Despite such a painful journey through church and family trauma, rife with father wounds, Miriam prayed as if she knew with 200% certainty that God, whom she called Abba, Father, was in fact good, even though her own image of father's was anything but good. And she prayed with faithfulness and boldness that Amanda and I had never witnessed before and was really powerful. It was around this time as they were praying for us that we learned that they knew our pain very specifically. You might say that they knew our pain times six. Miriam and and her husband, Greg, had suffered not one, not two, not three, but six miscarriages, if you can believe that. And they still don't have children. In fact, miscarriages were only a fraction of her health struggles. And to this day, she, struggles, she suffers from fibromyalgia, which means that every day she wakes up and suffers from unexplainable and sometimes excruciating and debilitating pain, along with fatigue, trouble sleeping, mood swings. And to this day, doctors continue to struggle to find further causes and solutions. When we learned this, we were completely floored. I mean, how can someone pray with so much hope and love for someone else after suffering so much? You know, it's, it's something to pray for someone else's healthy pregnancy and dreams of parenthood after only knowing unhealthy pregnancies and, and unfulfilled broken dreams. You know, it's something to pray for someone else's health when your own experience is only the breakdown of your own. And how, can you, how can you pray to a God and trust that he is a good father after being let down and deceived by your own father and pastor? How does all that suffering not completely destroy you? And how can you still say that God is good in the midst of suffering? How can you still love and worship him? How can you still come to him with hope and joy? Why must we go through seasons of suffering? And you know, for some of us, we might be asking, why does my whole life feel like a never-ending season of suffering? Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciple that in this world you will have trouble. In this world, we will have trouble. And right before it, he says, in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. And yet, we see so much suffering. And we see people who follow Jesus still suffer. So what's the deal? Mm -hmm. Today we confront seasons of suffering. Seasons that we hope we'll never have to face and yet something that will find all of us. Jesus says you will have trouble. Not you might have trouble and, and come to me when you do. Not when you have trouble, but you will have trouble. Over the past weeks, we've been in our series titled Seasons, exploring seasons of life and the spiritual journey, and more specifically, discovering God's unique invitations to us in each season. Through seasons of stagnancy, dryness, doubt, and suffering, God is calling us to him. There's never a season in which God is not calling out and inviting us. And so each season offers us a unique way to respond to his invitation. So today, I want to I take us through somewhat of a quick theology of suffering, focusing on what Jesus and the New Testament writers have to say about it, um, and in the process, uncover God's unique invitation to us in these difficult and trying seasons and our unique opportunities to respond. Why do we suffer and how do we suffer? Or more specifically, how do we suffer well? Uh, Have your Bibles ready because we're going to be flipping around. Uh, First, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll pick it up at verse 14. If you've been in church, you know the story. uh, The serpent tempts Eve to think that God is essentially holding out on her. Uh, she believes his lies, and she and Adam eat of the tree of which God tells them not to. And this is where we pick things up. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. the first mention of curse in the Bible. The Hebrew word is arar. From this point on, everything is cursed. The serpent is cursed. Adam and Eve, mankind, is cursed. The ground, the earth, literally everything is cursed. And at the root of that curse is severed relationship. Sin severs their relationship with This is also the first mention of suffering in the Bible. Pain, labor, sweat, toil, and ultimately death. Suffering is part of the curse of sin. We are all under that curse. This is important to realize because it will recolor our understanding of fairness when it comes to suffering. You know, it's easy to think of sin only as like the things we do or our vices or like naughty thoughts, but we must remember that, is, that it's actually an infectious condition that affects and ruins everything. And suffering is its byproduct. Suffering is the painful reality of and reminder that we live in a world infected and ravaged by sin. In order to begin to understand suffering, we must confront the reality of sin. Nothing else will make sense without that. Sin, curse and suffering, damage Adam and Eve's relationship with God and with each other. Curse and suffering get passed on in the children. Cain gives into sin and kills Abel. Curse and suffering run rampant throughout history inescapable reality that we ourselves experience. We experience the curse. We feel it. We see it on the news. We experience pain, sadness, toil, heartbreak, sorrow, and death. Sin is the byproduct, or suffering is the byproduct of the curse of sin. But it doesn't say that way. The story is far from over. Fast forward with me now to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, and we'll start around on verse two. Matthew chapter five, verse two, it starts. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The famous Beatitudes, which require a whole series, but today we'll just touch on the word blessed. If you've ever read this passage before your first question might have been blessed how how are these people blessed? You know how how are you blessed when you're poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty? Like what is Jesus talking about? That sounds like suffering to me. And I'll say this is especially strange and foreign to us in our current cultural moment and in our geographical location. Like we live in the land of God bless America, or hashtag blessed. You know, when someone sneezes, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, bless you. So what is our understanding of the word blessed? What do we mean by it? And could it potentially be a gross misunderstanding? In this passage, Matthew uses the Greek word makarios, which means happy, blessed, to be envied, fortunate, or well-off. Now, when I say well-off, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Likely possessions. In our culture, well-off equates to good job, money to afford whatever you need and want, a house, a nice card, all the Apple products. When we think to be envied, what's the first thing that comes to our mind? If we're honest, most of us have either knowingly or unknowingly used things like social media to inspire envy when we're not busy scrolling through envying someone else. When we think blessed, our minds probably remain in the same ballpark. We say things like, I was blessed with a job, I'm blessed with this house, Uh, we, we go on vacation, we take a selfie, that's hashtag blessed, I'm blessed with this vacation. I had a friend actually say to me once, I feel like the universe blessed me with this Land Rover. I kid you not. And I was like, "Uh, okay. Uh, We also say things like, I'm blessed with great friends. I'm blessed with a wonderful family or community. And these are great gifts that we should be thankful for. I'm not saying that things like friends and family are not a blessing. A Land Rover, questionable. But what is Jesus getting at? When Jesus says blessed, there's no mention of material wealth and status. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how are we blessed when we're poor in spirit and in need? Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 19, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What if, what if material wealth and status are not actually blessings? This isn't to say that it's necessarily bad to be rich. That's different for everyone. But what if material wealth and status are potential hindrances or barriers? What if, what if they get in between us and God? That's a question we'll each need to answer honestly for ourselves. But what if being poor in spirit and in need actually removed these hindrances? What if having all the comforts that we think we need actually removes distractions? Oh, I'm sorry, what if not having all the comforts that we think we need actually removes distractions and barriers between us and God? The other morning during my quiet time, I meditated on this verse from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And that got me thinking. What if to be supremely blessed was actually not to be materially well-off, per se, to have status or clout, but simply to know Jesus. And what if to be needy and desperate actually led you deeper and deeper into knowing Jesus? Could there be a link between suffering and true blessing? Because we know Jesus has a special heart drawn to those who are suffering. Could our perception of suffering be skewed by our misconception of blessing? We think blessing equates to having this or that, being this or that, well off, not in need. And then we go through suffering and we think, wow, God must not love me. He must not be blessing me. You know, the the, the pervasiveness and the infectiousness of the prosperity gospel feeds this line of thought. Prevailing cultural values and the emphasis on merit and making it feed this line of thought. But what if God wants to lead us to a truer form of blessing? Knowledge of relationship with dependence on incomplete satisfaction in him. And what if suffering is a necessary road we must travel through? Alas, the invitation emerges. Jesus states, in me you may have peace. Not in money, not in possessions, not in the amount of followers you have, not in your influence, not in your status. In me you may have peace. We, as a people, are, are so prone to reducing things to simplistic binaries. Joy is the absence of sorrow, or peace is the absence of chaos. But what if true peace and true joy are peace and joy that exist in spite of sorrow, tragedy, and chaos? Peace and joy that shine in the midst of the curse. What if the blessing of suffering is first, purification, the purging of distractions, vices, and idols, then freedom, freedom from the needs of our possessions and status, and then real relationship. And what if in this is true peace? What if suffering with Jesus, you know, instead of crushing us, actually leads us to being people of peace, rather than people who depend on the right circumstances and situations for peace. I mean, isn't that a truer, fuller, more eternal definition of peace? Suffering and blessing, a link. So what does suffering do to us? How does it form our character? How is suffering formational? Turn to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter 5, and we'll just read verses 3 through 5. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us in to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James later writes in, in, in chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As a new parent, uh, I'm always looking for parenting wisdom, and I came across this nugget from pastor, writer, and Father Rich Fiotis. He posts, my job is not to make my kids happy. My task is not to orient their lives around comfort. My responsibility is to raise well-adjusted 40-year-olds, not happy teenagers. And my job as a parent is to train our kids to cultivate joy, not to make them happy. Huh? In in other words, the job of a loving parent is not to give in to the constantly changing whims and desires of a constantly changing and growing little person. It's to train and disciple a child into someone who can navigate the realities of life. A couple weeks back, uh, I shared with you that I have every intention of imposing limits and rules on my daughter. All those, you know, all those rules on screen time, candy, whatever. That will hopefully be wise and godly. I have every intention of guarding her from and preparing her for the distractions, the evils, and the challenges of growing up in a world of constantly shifting values. In a world cursed. And now after sharing this quote with you, you're probably like, I mean, I'm really glad you're not my parent or guardian. And I'll say, if you try to spoil my child, if you so much as put an iPhone into her hand, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will give you a stern talking to. Um, Don't worry. I promise there will be fun. My daughter is like only five weeks old right now. Uh, And I'm already looking forward to to all the, the burger and ice cream dates we'll go on, all the movies we'll see, all the adventures we'll have together, discovering books, music, exploring the heart of Jesus together. It's like oodles and oodles of fun planned. Now, as the most perfectly loving father in the entire universe, what must God do for us? Well, he comes after us. He opens his arms out to us. He beckons us home. and He launches the greatest rescue mission. He makes the greatest sacrifice to do so. But the reality is that we still have to navigate life in a world infected and ravaged by sin. We still have to navigate life in a cursed world. And So what do we really need for that? What do we need in order to thrive, let alone survive? Paul writes endurance. James writes steadfastness. And so God must cultivate endurance in us. Otherwise, he would be the irresponsible parent who does not prepare his child for real life. And so to sum up so far, suffering is purifying. It purges us of the things that get in between us and God. And suffering is formational. And this is where we get to the beautiful turnaround. Up until now, we've talked about suffering as the byproduct of the curse of sin. And we've confronted the reality that no one is immune to the curse. Everyone is subject to it. Everyone suffers, the believer as much as the unbeliever. And so we might ask, If everyone suffers, uh, why follow Jesus? Why surrender to Jesus so I'm just going to suffer like everyone else? You know, for, for Miriam and Greg, following Jesus and praying to God constantly didn't give them a healthy pregnancy and a baby. Why follow Jesus? After years of suffering brought on by the jealousy of his brothers after being sold off into slavery, being wrongfully accused and then imprisoned, but then climbing the ranks to become second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, Joseph meets his brothers again, years after their betrayal. He's forgiven them, and he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God takes suffering, what was the byproduct of the curse of sin, and he turns it into blessing. God uses it to form us. God uses it to draw us to him. And more than this, God chooses to endure it with us. Jesus comes down to suffer with us and for us. And the amazing truth is that he never leaves us. When we suffer, we feel absence. We feel the absence of God, we feel like he's far away. But the truth is that he is never absent. He's never far away. But when Jesus suffered on the cross for us, he actually experienced separation from God. It wasn't just a feeling, it was his reality. Which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it might be unimaginable for us, but this pain was actually the worser pain. This pain was worse than the pain of the beatings, worse than the pain of the torture, the nails and the spear, because this was the pain of hell. Total separation from God. But friends, Jesus' victory over sin and death ensures that we don't have to face that same separation. The ultimate curse of sin is death and separation from God. But because Christ suffered for us, we don't have to face that. We are saved from the curse. And it gets better. The promise of the Holy Spirit to those who receive Jesus means that we are never alone. We are never alone in our suffering. And our suffering is never meaningless because God is with us and he redeems it. Lastly, suffering is seasonal, meaning there is an end. We will not suffer forever. Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Paul writes back in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And David reminds us in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. He's realistic. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. Because of God's sovereignty and grace, our suffering is redeemed. Because of the cross, because of Jesus' victory, there is an end to suffering. The curse of sin defeated. He has overcome the world. The suffering we go through will feel long. For many of us, maybe it's already felt too long but there is an end in sight. You will exit this season. And on the grander scale, there will come a time when the curse of sin is vanquished once and for all, and along with it, all the evil, pain, sorrow, and suffering. Jesus promises, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We know why suffering exists. We know and we feel the effects of it, the effects of the curse. No one is immune. But we also know that God does something about it. He walks alongside us in our suffering. He redeems our suffering and he promises an end to that. More than that, he promises unimaginable joy and glory at the end of it. A theme we've been seeing throughout the series is that our response in one season of our lives will have an effect on the people we become in the next season. The way we respond in seasons of suffering determines the people we will be in seasons of joy and fruitfulness. Will we exit the season of suffering with rejoicing? Will we become people of joy? Or will we exit completely jaded and crushed? The final question is how do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? In Psalm 126, the psalmist writes, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Theologian Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He writes, All suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is a seed. Sow it in God and he will finally bring a crop of joy from it. Keyword So, this is active. Jesus knows pain and suffering so much better than we think he does. He beckons us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how do we suffer well? Go to Jesus. We can't control our feelings, but we can control our thought life. Meditate and rest on the truth that Jesus is with you. And he will never leave you. Meditate and rest on the truth that the Holy Spirit is strengthening you. And that suffering is seasonal. Take your suffering, all of that pain and that sorrow, all of the tragedy and the injustice, and lament. Cry out to God. If you don't know how to cry spend time in the Psalms of Lament. A majority of the 150 Psalms we see in the Bible are actually Psalms of Lament. We had a whole teaching series on Lament a couple months back. I would encourage you to go and revisit those if if, if you want to review how do we practice lament. Lament. Don't hold it inside. Lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus. Remember that the church The community here is the physical manifestation of Christ's body here on earth. The church exists to physically manifest the love and the care of Jesus. And so lay your burdens on Him by taking them to community. Offload your suffering onto your brothers and sisters here. Since we know that true peace and joy exists not after, but in the midst of the chaos. As we lament, let us also find reason to rejoice. Let us use praise and worship as weapons against suffering. The curse of sin threatens to crush us, but we can take an active stance by choosing to rejoice. Worship is a weapon. Rejoicing is resistance. We may suffer. We will not be defeated, though. Rejoicing reorients our gaze to the presence and the work of Jesus in the midst of our trials, and it, in turn, gives us the strength to go on. Lastly, choose to endure. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and I will say this is quite possibly one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. We walk to our final exams having not studied. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not really the meaning. Uh, when, when you read it in context, what Paul is speaking of is obedience and endurance. So I can endure through him who strengthens me. Suffering is painful and there will not always be an immediate purpose and meaning. But suffering always bears fruit if we choose to sow the seeds. Paul and James remind us that suffering produces endurance. And this is an essential ingredient of faith that is real and faith that lasts. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We must realize that life is not an optional race. Either we run it for it runs us. Friends, choose to run the race. God is merciful and gracious. He will grant us rest and reprieve. There will be joy in between. But also know that the prize that ultimately awaits is unimaginable joy and indescribable glory. Let us conclude with what David writes in Psalm 30. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on us? Would you, would you look upon our suffering? You know what we're all going through. You know our pain. And so Jesus, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your strength. And we ask that you would come alongside us and comfort us. We ask that you would shepherd us through seasons of suffering you give us the strength to endure but would you allow us to see your love despite the cloudiness of the chaos would you deliver us in jesus name we pray amen you can have a seat um, at this time as we usually do we'll observe a moment of silence this is a time where we reflect on what God has just put on our hearts. So take a second, breathe, take a couple slow, deep breaths, and I'll I'll lead us through some, some guiding prompts. First, how do you define blessing? What's your understanding of it?